Okay, guys. I heard very good report about last week. There was a good service here. There was good teaching and fellowship. And it gave you a break from listening to me for sure because we have been um, working through some very intense stuff and maybe based on the seats here, maybe I've scared people off. I'm not exactly sure, but we're going to we're going to keep on going, and I mean going in a very significant way. Now, I want to say this. The next two weeks are weeks of just what I'll call hold on. The thing about everything that we've talked about is if you just listen to one message, if you just hear one message, you are going to be lost and you're going to be confused and you might even think that your rabbi is a heretic. There's an entire series of information going on here, especially these two weeks, which I sent in an email to you last night indicating very, very specific conversation regarding Yeshua. We have had much discussion regarding Messiah and we'll have more. But these two weeks are weeks of, of, of hold on, okay? Paradigmatic shift for some of you. I think that's a word. Pretty sure it is. If it's not, it sounds very intelligent. <laughs> a paradigm shift. Paradigmatic. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Here's the thing I am getting ready to tell you and have been telling you what I believe to be true. What I believe based on study, based on prayer, based on many, 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 many very smart minds that have gone before me, who have informed my worldview. Now, I'm telling you what I believe and what makes sense and what I think builds and strengthens your relationship with God in a way that maybe you've not considered through Messiah Yeshua. What I'm not doing is telling you what you must believe, okay? That's for creeds and councils, which I'll talk about in just a second. I am not telling you or anyone who's listening to this on the app or anywhere else what you must believe. Having an opinion is important. Being dogmatic is not essential. And unfortunately, in the world of religion that we live and breathe in, dogma has superseded any logical interaction and conversation between people. Because if you don't believe what I believe, Michael, I have no use for you. As a matter of fact, you're probably a heretic. And not only do I think that about you, I should probably tell other people so that they can keep their distance from you. That is not the way of the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> we are discussing probably the deepest mystery of all the scriptures, and that is God, His Son, as Messiah. I can shed light on things from a, from a Jewish perspective. I cannot answer the mysteries. Ultimately, 
this will be to some degree your decision. And honestly, honestly, what I say I've found in a very short amount of time in ministry, what I, have, what I say has very little impact unless it's something that really resonates with you and then you go and do your own study and work and arrive at your own opinions. But I would encourage you to do what we said in the Shema before the reading. Enlighten my eyes, Father, in the Scripture. Talk to me, teach me, show me, grow me. And of all the things we've discussed up to this point, which really, honestly, in my opinion, are not controversial at all, but um, these will probably be some eyebrow raisers. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to ask you to hold on. And I'm going to say, and I, I, one time I heard Daniel Lancaster make this comment, what we're going to talk about is going to probably make you think out of your box. And when we're done you may not ever find your way back into your box. And that's not bad. And that is what is called a paradigm shift. So, from there, a harsh reality, a slap in the face, a wake-up call today, a wake-up call for me this week. These things that we're speaking about, which are the incarnation of God, the Spirit of Messiah, the Logos, God made flesh, all these things, the things that we know as having been people in in religious communities are Christian explanations for the Jewish Messiah. What does that mean? Christian explanations for the Jewish Messiah. Well, many, many, many of your theological foundations are things that were created by councils that existed, ideas at least, that existed 150, 250, and then councils that were three, four, five hundred years after Messiah. Councils like Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, councils where not one single Jewish believer was invited. As a matter of fact, discouraged. As a matter of fact, not even not invited, anti-Semitic, basically, in some of the decisions that came out of these councils. Changing Passover, changing the Sabbath, prohibiting Jewish observance. These councils that everyone knows, Nicaea. Now, let me say... As a disclaimer, I am not in any way supposing that I am smarter than the 300 plus bishops and folks that were at the Council of Nicaea and all of that. There are smart men who loved God and certainly the Spirit has revealed much through Christianity. So I don't want to be overly haughty in that. But listen, apart from the Jewishness of the Gospels, the disciples, the faith, the Messiah, explanations needed to be found by these guys. And they had zero Jewish perspective and understanding or input. Now, people who have taught some of the things that we're talking about, which were a a divergence from these councils, do you know what happened to them? Many, many at the hands of the council members and the church that emerged from these councils. Do you know what happened to people who had a divergent opinion? Torture. Death. That is the cost of dogma. 
No dialogue. Now, were some of them heretical? Were some of them Gnostic? Of course. Were some of them dangerous? Of course. Of course. But the thing is, what I'm saying is that there's a long history of dogma and no chance of questioning it. And that's not, that's not us. Here's my question though. Why in a messianic synagogue would we teach that? Why Teach what? Teach the very same ideas, suppositions, conclusions, creeds and dogmas that came out of these Christian councils. Why are you at the Messianic Synagogue? Why do you attend? Some of you, you know, you're Jewish believers. That's just where you belong. Many of you are from a non-Jewish background. Why are you here? Because something didn't add up. Something's not right. Something, there's got to be a better and different explanation for this. You should expect that we're going to buck the trend here when we talk about Christology. The study of Christ. The study of Messiah. We think differently. Foundations are foundations. Shema Yisrael, foundational. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, foundation. I believe with complete faith in Yeshua, the Messiah who has come and will come again, and though He may tarry every day, I will wait for Him. Foundational. I added that to Rambam's principle of faith. He doesn't quite mention Yeshua, but we do. Foundation. God is one, Yeshua is Messiah. Creeds that were arrived at some three and four hundred years beyond the lifetime's mission, purpose, and miraculous work of Messiah Yeshua, I will certainly be open to them, but that is not going to inform our foundational doctrine at a Messianic synagogue. So, by the way, why was the Council of Nicaea so important? Who, everyone knows the Council of Nicaea. Are you familiar with it? It was a huge deal. Bishops from all over the place, all over the Asia Minor and from the West and the East, Christian parts of the world came together and they decided this is how Yeshua and the Logos and the Father and the, and, well, the Spirit part came later. This stuff happened at Nicaea. And then there was another Nicaea council. And then there was something called Chalcedon. And then there were, there were all these councils. But do you know the foundational mover, the prime mover behind the council of Nicaea? Constantine. Because now the church was religious. Christianity was the Roman thing. Empires, emperors on, on board with it. And so... Convince the emperor of your position, and that's what it's going to be. Did you know that Emperor Constantine's own sons had a very differing opinion of what the Trinity or the, the manifestation of God looked like? Did you know that Constantine had his son killed and a variety of other not-so-great things? He wasn't a great guy, but that is... Because of the imperial backing, a big push for why Nicaea was accepted wholeheartedly. Those who did not, those who were of a heretical position, were exiled. 
I'm way off track, but the point of this introduction is this. We are dealing with mysteries. One of your favorite scriptures that I remember you always quoting is Deuteronomy 29.29. Do you know it? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And as I've said before in every introduction in this series, I tread lightly, I tread with fear and trembling as we venture into the secret things. I prefer... As I heard also Pastor Lancaster once say, I prefer when teaching in this environment to remain in the revealed. It's safer in the revealed. But sometimes there is a mystery worthy of consideration. What is the mystery specifically? Well, basically just the one we've staked our entire lives on. Just that. That Yeshua is a human, divine messenger of God, Shaliach, and all the, all the things that we've worked up to to this point. Possessing the fullness of God in a human frame, who has come and will come again to save the world. And the consideration of what that means is seen by those closest to Him. The author of the Gospels and the Epistles. We must begin where they began. Does that make sense? Do we begin in 350 some AD? Or do we remember we do we begin where the apostles and the epistles, disciples and the apostles began? We begin there with the humanity of Yeshua. Because amazingly, you don't need a creed to understand this. The subject is difficult. The Scriptures really do not give us... I mean, you cannot read the Scriptures and say, I got it. I know exactly how this works. And here it is. But they do inform a lot of decisions that we can come to. It is very hard to recap all that I've done so up to this point, so I won't. But basically, the Spirit of Messiah was before all and was with God. And was God, an extension of His fullness, known as His Word, His Memra we spoke about. We spoke about the Targums and interpretations of God's active interaction on earth. We looked at many examples of His Word in action on earth. His agent, His Shaliach, you remember that word? The sent one, His messenger. The sent one interacting with humanity to accomplish the purpose of God. Of God, representing God, containing His authority, so much so that when the Shaliach spoke, it was assumed to be God Himself speaking. Of God, but not God. A manifestation of God. But then John comes and really throws a curveball in. Really. And the Word became... And here, my friends, things get interesting. And why? How so? Because it's the question that Judaism has struggled with in Christianity from the beginning. How can God, the supreme God, take on a human form? The transcendent God. Why would He? To even suggest that He could lowers Him to a place I am unwilling to go. The classic Jewish 
theologian would say. I can't really use that word there, but... To work through a divine agent? Fine. Okay. Even to inspire the prophets through the Mimra, but for God Himself to become a man? Impossible. Heretical. No. That's what John is read like in a traditional Jewish understanding. But the traditional Christian understanding is very different. The answer traditional Christianity would suggest is really very easy. Paul says it for us in Philippians. I want you to turn there. Philippians 2. This is going to be a Scripture that is going to basically be the most central Scripture, I think, in the entire uh, apostolic and, and writings for the point we're trying to make. Philippians 2, 5, 6, 7, 8. Messiah Yeshua, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, traditional kind of Christian understanding. You ready for the translation? God came out of heaven, took up form in a human body for a while, and then went back. So God was Yeshua, and Yeshua was God. The depths of the Scripture that I just read you are so incredibly significant that we could spend a month talking about them. And we will come back to them. But in no way is it as simple as that translation I just, or that, that interpretation I just gave you. For some 1,800 years, it's been discussed and debated. But for the average believer in Yeshua who is not concerned too much with how we got here, the simplest thing to assume is God became a man, but not really because He's God. Again to say, fully God and fully man, but mostly God. In other words, the human thing, ah, you know, it's necessary because tons of scriptures say he had to be like us. But he really wasn't like us because he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he performed all those miracles, he acted like God, he raised the dead. So in essence, what we've got is God in a man suit. Kind of like a demigod. Kind of like Hercules. Father was Zeus, his mother was a woman. And Hercules, though he looked human, he had a lot of powers. He was really strong, and Hercules isn't real. But that's kind of, if you will just allow me the liberty, a bit reminiscent of what Yeshua has become through misinterpreting Scripture. God pretending to be a man, 
But in his back pocket, he keeps his divine wand. And whatever needs to be done with a flick of the wrist, he can do what he wants because he's God. Which interestingly is basically an offshoot of Gnosticism, which is what the disciples and the Gospel writers were trying to combat. That Yeshua's body was not even really a body. It was like a phantom. That God just had it. It just was around, you know. And, and, but it wasn't a real body. It was a phantom body. The negative implications of losing sight of Yeshua's humanity are huge. And it has happened to some extent. If we gloss over, if we minimize, spiritualize Yeshua's humanity, we lose the power of His work. The supernatural accomplishment. So here's a deal. Here's a deal. It's going to be a great deal. It's going to be the, going to be the best deal. Believe me. Can God sin? All in favor. Can God sin? So here is a question for you. Actually, it's a blunt but accurate statement. Okay? It's not a question. I just asked you a question. Now I'm going to make a blunt but accurate statement. Based on your confident conclusion. If Yeshua is God in a man suit and he never sinned. Ready? So what? So what? What is important about that? Is there any more ridiculous statement to make than that God could be tempted to sin? God cannot sin. God cannot even look upon sin. Is it any accomplishment if Yeshua is masquerading as God that He lived His life without sinning? Is it? It's not. Because God can't sin. Would God be tempted to look at the attractive woman crossing the street? Would God be covetous of Shimon's new warm cloak in January in Israel? Could God sin? What more obvious statement could there be that one could make regarding God that He is without sin? Which is what Hebrews says. He was without sin. And we'll come back to Hebrews a lot. The apostolic writers go to great lengths to stress the absolute humanity of Yeshua. Now, here's the miracle. The miracle is not that Yeshua was God and He was sinless because that's a given if that were the case. The miracle is that 
a man could be sinless. That a human being who interacts in our world from waking to sleeping could go through his entire life without sinning. That's miraculous. Like, that's the stuff religions are founded on. Is anyone totally lost? Good. A particular favorite I recently came across, again, which speaks of Yeshua's humanity in a way that just, I think it's glossed. I think it gets glossed. Luke 2. Turn to Luke 2. Particularly, or specifically, Luke 2.52. Somebody read that out loud for me. Luke 2.52. Say it again. That's pretty incredible if we see beyond the haze. He increased in wisdom. Can God get smarter? He increased in wisdom. He became smarter. He studied. No, 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 no. No, sir, he did not. He was the Word made flesh. He knew it beyond knowing. He would have never, ever studied. Don't even bring that heresy in here, boy. I didn't write it. He grew in wisdom and in stature. The more incredible part of that is the second part. And God's favor toward him grew. As he grew in wisdom and stature, what was happening? God is looking down and uh, he's proud of him. He's proud of himself. He's proud of him. He's proud of Yeshua. Prayer. Yeshua prays constantly. Right? Always. He's going off somewhere. He's doing this. We find Him in many prayer situations. And He's obviously praying to Himself, right? No. He's not praying to Himself. He's praying to His Father in Heaven who hears Him. And I know He hears Him because Hebrews talks about that just a little bit later. Temptation. Back to can God sin? Can God be tempted? Has God ever been tempted? Can He be tempted? Anyone? Anyone want to take that one? Of course He can't be tempted. He's God. Where was Yeshua taken immediately after the Jordan River? Where where was he taken? Why? Who took him there? What took him there? Right. So, but you know what's really interesting? And I think maybe we'll look at that next week is those specific temptations. 
those specific temptations. They were things, they weren't like bad things like, hey, I'll give you 101 virgins and you can, you know, you can have your way. Or I'll give you, you know, a, a, a Swiss bank account. No, it's different things, insidious things that would appeal to our human nature. Power, control. Who likes those things? I like those things. And if somebody told me, somebody who supposedly could give it to me, I'd be tempted to maybe consider it because I'm human. Emotion and feeling. He participated in the normal experiences of mortal life. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was sad. He had pity. He had frustration. He was amazed. The most common designation Yeshua gives Himself, I think roughly 81, 80 something times in the, in the, in the uh, Gospels, the most common term, I'll have you raise your hand. Messiah. Who thinks that's his number one designation for himself? Messiah. He indirectly says it a couple of times. The Samaritan woman, the one you speak of, stands before you. Okay, so not really. God. God. How many times did he say, I am God? Exactly zero times. Son of God. Any takers? Son of God. He refers to himself often as the Son. And throughout the Scriptures, he is referred to as the Son of God. I want to remind you of the Jewish interpretation of that phrase for later though. Son of God. In the Torah, it's used both of the nation of Israel and of kings. It is never, ever an indication of or a relationship resulting from a divine conception by God. But through election carrying out the divine mission of God. In other words, a son of God throughout the Torah and the Scriptures is like a shaliach, like a sent one. Like one who is accomplishing God's work. And we will come back to Son of God, not today, but we will come back to Son of God because it is clearly in the New Testament a title for Yeshua. So I'm running out of options. I really should have thrown the right answer in prior to now, but I'll let you in. Any in favor of Son of Man... Son of Man, some 80 plus times in the Scripture. Son of Man. And there may be some in our congregation and certainly will be some on the audio teaching who are listening to this right now and in their head they're saying, I don't like where this is going. I don't think I like what I'm hearing. You might not, 
but I told you in the beginning, stick with me. It's never easy. Never easy to have your foundation shaken. But I built those foundations through generations. Okay. So more dynamite. What does son of man mean? I'm going to let you in on a secret. It's not a trick question. Human being is the primary primary meaning of son of man. Human being. In the New Testament, it is a title. It is a title for Yeshua, and we will look at that a little bit. It is a title. But how interesting that the most used description of Messiah by Messiah is human being. Question. Did Yeshua receive the Holy Spirit? He did receive the Holy Spirit. And why? Why? You don't have to answer it. I'll answer it for you, not now, but next week or the following week. But it's a question to ponder. If Yeshua contained the full essence of God, the Logos, in his human form and basically was just God in a man's suit, why did he need to receive the Holy Spirit? I'm going to leave that one hanging because I think it's very foundational. So here's what some of you are thinking. I told you what some are thinking. Here's what some of the other ones are thinking. Because you know when you stand up here, you, you know everything. You can read everyone's mind even. So, I mean, I can look into your eyes from here and know what you're thinking. I can't really, but I think I know what I would be thinking, and since I'm a son of man, here's what I think you might be thinking. So what? I've been a believer for 10, 15, 30, 50, 70 years. So what? He's human. We know that. And he has God in him, and he's... Fully God and fully man. Okay, cool. So what? Why all that? Because here's what I think. I don't know if people really know that. Like I don't know if people really, really down to the depths of how important that is to the message of the gospel for you and salvation and what it means to proclaim Yeshua as Messiah. And I know for doggone sure that many people 
in the world who profess to be believers have zero understanding of what that means. That this was not God playing dress up. This is a moment in time. It's a moment in time when he was on earth. It is that, a moment. We talked about how he was before the foundations. We talk, Actually, that was the whole point of this message, which we're so far away from where we started. But you know what I realized? Gamzulatova, this too is for the good. We talked about where he was before the foundations, how that works. We will talk, and we're not even close to where he will be after. What it looks like at the end. The conversation is about how he did what he did to save the world. And so for now, forget the behind, forget the ahead. The importance of understanding him doing what he did, when he did it, in that moment in time, in his humanity, is invaluable to your relationship with him. I'm telling you because through the process, I'm experiencing it. And I had some idea of what it was, but investing and learning and really seeing this is changing Messiah inside for me and outside for me. And when I see and understand what it means that He's my Messiah. There is a particular reason One of many why this humanity is so important. I'll give you a hint. It has to do with the first human. Who was? It has to do with the first human. And what this human would have to do what the first to undo what the first human did. And Paul talks about it. And he does a great job. When I read, there there is an inherent danger why all the creeds, the tortures for heretical beliefs that were different than what the creeds said. Why such fear of discussing these things, I wonder? Why such fear? Because my friends, if we, here's the inherent danger. If we move too far from seeing Him as God and just see Him as a real good man who did a whole lot of good things and He just happened to be so good that He never sinned? If we lose that, if we, if we go there, we miss a massively powerful story. Because Judaism has had plenty of really, really good guys. Really good guys. Christianity has had many really, really good guys, but not one of them was sinless, and not one of them was the Word made flesh. But if we miss the humanity, the human being, the Son of Man, we have missed an important, equally maybe more important part of the story. And there is fear surrounding this conversation. I mean, I had someone tell me, you shouldn't be talking about this. You shouldn't be talking about this from the Bema. You're going to confuse people. You're going to lead them astray or you're going to lead them away. Maybe they were right. I don't know. I'm not going to lead you astray. 
But there's fear, so much that we don't talk about it. The Council of Nicaea, the church fathers, the Council of Chalcedon, and all those who've gone before you who know much more have figured this out, laid it down. We don't talk about it. Don't ask questions. Don't reconsider it. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. When I read... In Hebrews, in the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7, we will be back there. In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. When I read it, I see a man, a real man. A man who cried, who sweat, who felt bad, who even struggled, who knows my struggles. I relate to him and he relates to me and I see how what he did in a human frame and form and existence, how that demonstrates a real love for me that I couldn't see any other way. I see a man who loved his father above all. So much so he loved his father. That in order to reconcile those who could not be reconciled on their own, he took an impossible thing and converted it into action and made it happen as a man. I don't see a demigod. I don't see super God Jesus. I don't see a superhuman incapable of sin on autopilot from on high. I don't see, quote, God, because God can't sin and He could sin. He could if He was fully human. He did not. I don't see a figure who came contrary to public opinion to be worshipped, but to serve, to suffer, to demonstrate God's love on a human level. And this is the conclusion for today. One word. Duplicatable. Duplicatable. Without Yeshua's humanity, we are without hope for ever being what our Father calls us to be. Be holy, for I am holy. Without Yeshua's humanity, we are without hope. Because if Yeshua's obedience was accomplished by a God-man crutch, what hope do you have Forever pursuing holiness and being like God has called you. He set the example. You are not God.
the Scriptures make one thing very clear. If Yeshua was going to be the way, the truth, and the life for humanity, He must be like us. And that just may reek to you of heresy. But there is no other way that it could be what it is. If Yeshua is going to be the way, the truth, and the life for humanity, He must be like us. That is, like men and women in every respect. And I quote a New Testament theologian by the name of G.B. Caird, who I have grown to see this man was anointed from on high. He must be like men and women in every respect. And Caird said, exhausting all the possibilities of human temptation and suffering, following to its end, the path of obedience to God. In other words, being human. Being tempted in all things. And suffering the way that you suffer. And you suffer. And taking it to what to us would be an illogical end. Amazing, miraculous end. That He did this without sin but He did it like you or me. We're just not good at it. And He did that. And by this the Scripture says, He was made perfect. By what? by His suffering, by His temptation, by His unfailing obedience, He was made perfect. Fully qualified for the task at hand. And most importantly, He did that in a way that to some degree, as much as you want to, you can follow. Not to mention what He gave you when He left to help you do that. Something known as the Ruach HaKodesh. But that's another story. He did it in a way that we could follow. And He could not do that with magic potions, God crutches, and magic wands. When He was on earth, He, like us, lived nearly all of His years by faith, prayer, experience, learning to trust God, follow God, and absolutely surrender to God. If we miss it, if we miss seeing Him that way, if we spiritualize that away from Him, we are destroying one of the most powerful components of the Gospel. And so, my friends, this is the Son of Man. But clearly He is more and there is more. And God willing, you can handle it and we'll be back next week for the Son of God. Shabbat Shalom.